would ask your attention to the portion of the Word of God that we read together in the book of Joshua and chapter 7. As you turn to the early chapters of the book of Joshua, we're seeing a transition going of the generations. The disobedient generation of the Israelites had perished in the wilderness, with the exception of the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua. And the new generation and the leader are at the beginning of experiencing the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to give them the land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan. And you start to see a repeat of past favours to the new generation so that they are assured that God is with them, that they're going to be with Joshua, just as God was with Moses, who'd gone before them. And so just as the Red Sea had parted for the earlier generation, the River Jordan parts for them. Just as Moses had been at the burning gate, a burning bush, sorry, and had been told to take off his feet, shoes, for the the ground on which he stood was holy, so Joshua was met by the captain of the Lord's host with his sword drawn and told to remove his shoes because the ground was holy. The spies entered Jericho and brought back a faithful report to Joshua. Unlike the ten that he'd, been spied, he'd spied with those years before. And they showed their faith, they said, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 24, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land. The children of Israel were commanded to be circumcised, which represented their sanctification to the Lord, and they celebrated the Passover. You have that incredible account of the miraculous defeat of Jericho, where the walls fell to the ground and the inhabitants were slaughtered. However, as we come to the chapter before us, as we come to what we can call the valley of trouble, we find things change. And suddenly some sober realities kick in for Joshua and this generation. And we'll base our thoughts under three headings this evening. The first is the favour expected. The second is frustration experienced. And the third is faithfulness exacted. So firstly then this evening, we see that favour was expected. Now Joshua had received a remarkable promise from God as he was being given this awesome responsibility of leading this great nation of Israel. We read in chapter 1, verse 5, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So this remarkable promise is none of the enemies in Canaan will be able to stand against Joshua. He'll be able to defeat them all. Now Joshua was a godly and a good man. 
He was a faithful man. And he was not embarrassed to believe the promised and to lead the people accordingly. And we read in chapter 3 from verse 9 that Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Now Jericho had been a major obstacle for the children of Israel. We might even say it was key for the invasion of Canaan. And the cities of Ai and Bethel were just as important as they could be used as a base to attack from, as well as a place to retreat to and to defend. And when you look at the defeat of Jericho, it relied on two things. First thing it relied on was the faith of the people, that God would give them the victory. They were inexperienced in battle. We know that Joshua was an experienced commander. He'd fought in battles previously and led the armies of Israel. But most of the men had never really faced battle. But the second thing that they were required to provide was they had to obey an extraordinary set of instructions to walk silently around the city each day and then blowing the trumpets and shouting on the 7th. Now, I'm no expert in military history, but I'm quite certain if I turned to any general from modern warfare and looked up how they defeated a particular city or army. It wouldn't have been by walking around in circles and shouting at them and blowing trumpets. I'm quite certain of that indeed. And this is a strange thing that they were told to do. And by doing it, it proved their faith and utter dependence upon God. Because had they tried any other means of defeating Jericho, they would have failed. And this is... A picture, isn't it, of how the Christian today defeats Satan. We have all the promises of Scripture. We have the armor provided. And it's not enough to simply walk by faith. You know, we hear this expression so much in Christian terms, I walk by faith. But often people mean I walk fatalistically. Sometimes people mean I walk rebelliously. I want my way and I'm trusting that God's going to bless it, whatever. They haven't actually sought God to guide them. But the word of God is described as a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our way. And if what we are attempting to do doesn't harmonize with the word of God and isn't submissive to the will of God, whatever faith we may have upon God, we cannot expect his blessing. Certainly not in Christian things and in the Lord's work. But as these Israelites had walked around Jericho on that last day and shouted and sounded the trumpets. It seems that the ground swallowed the walls of Jericho and removed the obstacle to their victory. And so they went in and slaughtered the inhabitants. God has set down strict instructions on things that were his and others that were to be left. And this man, Achan, he disobeyed. He clearly thought from the, the chapter we've read that his sin could be hidden he thought he could hide this from his fellow Jews and that there would be no consequences. But this was not the case. And secondly, we see frustration experience. We might say that Joshua and the Israelites, in, to 
put it in modern parlance, we might say that they've been boosted by the victory of Jericho. They were very confident in, in their God. They were very happy in the way things were going. They were delighted. And they had absolute confidence that God would give them the victory over Ai and Bethel. But this became overconfidence. As we see that Joshua made a very simple but very serious mistake. He failed to inquire of God what he should do. He failed to inquire of God whether he should go up against Ai and Bethel. He failed to inquire of God how he should fight. When I think of this, my mind goes forward in history to the life of David. And you find it, don't you, after that time, after Saul slew the priests, the young priest came with the ephod that had the Urim and the Thummim in it. And time and again we, we see David inquiring of God, shall I go up? Shall I not go up? Shall I go up? Shall I not come up when it comes to war? And it's believed that the Urim and the Thummim were two different stones and they'd be reached in for the answer from God. Sadly, you don't see him inquiring of God when he decided to commit adultery with Bathsheba and arrange for the death of Uriah. He, he lost his way then. And although Joshua hadn't got involved in any great sin, he fails to inquire of God what he should do. You might say, well, he's walking by faith here. He has absolute belief in God. He's believing in the promises of God. But his presumption led to Israel's defeat and the deaths of 36 men. Now, this was a very strange and surprising mistake for Joshua to make. For we know he had experienced the power of prayer. And we know this from Exodus 17. We sang about it in our last, last hymn, where he'd led the Israelites to victory over the Amalekites as Moses prayed with Aaron and Hur, lifting up his arms, the Jewish method to pray. And we see this in the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple, the Jewish way to pray as a sign of their righteousness in the law was to lift up the hands, hands to look up to heaven. And that's the attitude they prayed for, whereas we tend to bow our heads in the image of the, the publican that comes from the temple. And so these old men, they held up the hands of another old man. And whilst that, those arms were lifted up in prayer, they won the victory. And who was leading the troops that day? It was Joshua. And he felt the power of God behind him as he could lead and push back on the Amalekites. And as those hands came down, it was him who had to step backwards and retreat. And as they went back up again, he could strike forward again and win the day. So he knew what it was to experience the power of prayer, even in battle. We also know concerning Joshua that he was a man given to prayer. We read in Exodus chapter 33 how he remained in the tabernacle after Moses had returned to the camp and he stayed there communion, communing with God. So this was a godly man. This was a man given to prayer. But in verses 2 and 3, you see how he sent spies and they come back with this favorable report that only two or 3,000 were seen as being necessary to win the day. And in verse 4, you see how the men went up. But at no point in these first four verses... Do you read that Joshua or any other people prayed about this battle? They were so confident of victory. It's only once they've been defeated that all their confidence failed, that the hearts of the people melted and became as water, 
does Joshua pray and inquire of God. And he came and he bowed before the ark of the Lord and we start to observe that he failed to heed his calling. He who had been told, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou, neither be thou dismayed. He doesn't go to God and say, well, what's wrong, Lord? Show me why you've done this to us. He comes and he blames God for the defeat. Why had God brought them to this place, brought them over Jordan to be destroyed? Look at the ridiculousness of what he's saying to God. That God wants to destroy this people that he's made all these promises to. He wants to destroy Joshua, who he's even promised that he will be with. Then Joshua decides to blame the people and their lack of contentment as to why they've crossed Jordan. And he was forgetting God's promises to them and that they were following God's leadership to this point. And at this point, he starts to be afraid. He's fearful that they will be destroyed. Now we can say that Joshua had an awesome responsibility of these millions of people under him and feared the responsibility of that, but not if he trusted in God. Not if he kept his faith right. Now you met my two children this morning. My daughter's coming up to 11 and my son's 8. Well, becoming a father is quite an experience, as many of us will know. And one of the things I had to learn very quickly, particularly once my daughter became sort of the stage she could move around on her own, was that when she did something to hurt herself, I had to calm her mother down. Sounds a bit counterintuitive, because the first thing that would happen was Rachel would start crying, and then that would set Sarah off crying. And in my house, we have two different ways of bring up children. I think this is true of a lot of couples. My wife, when the children were young, would have wrapped them up in bubble wrap, put them in a feather duvet, and put them in a glass display cabinet somewhere, and absolutely protected them. Whereas a dad's way of bringing the kid up is, you go out, you, you run around in the thing, you trip up, you hurt yourself. Is it, are you bleeding? No. Can you move it? Yes. Off you go. And that's the father and the mother. Does one love the child more? No. Does one do the child more good than the other? No, you need the balance. Because you sure don't want to send your, your son out to play football with a broken ankle. And the balance is good. But here, we see God the Father acting as a father to Joshua. And it sounds harsh, what he says to Joshua. There's no placating Joshua. There's no comforting Joshua. He says, get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Why are you lying there, Joshua? We've got work to do. We've got business to attend to. We've got a country to invade, Joshua. Get up, he's saying here. And the reason he's saying this is Joshua's defeated. Joshua has, to some degree, lost his faith and lost his confidence. And so here we have the tough love approach, we might call it, by God the Father to his servant Joshua none of the promises are blemished or dented in any way to Joshua they all hold true but Joshua needs to start walking back with his Lord he's not to lie there moaning and moping about defeat God has an issue with the people and it needs to be resolved 
before his blessing will be restored. And Joshua should have realized this. He'd received the instructions concerning Jericho directly from God. Too many Christians today, we can sit around complaining. We can complain about our situation. We can complain about the state of the church and the feeling that it's defeated with so few people coming today. But what we need to do is entreat the Lord to show them what to do. We talk about the the parable, don't we, of the widow and the unjust judge. I don't like to call it that. I like to call it the nagging old woman parable. Because by nagging the judge, who wanted a bribe, she managed to get the justice she needed. And we read that Jesus taught that parable for a very simple reason that we ought always to pray and never to faint. Men ought always to pray and never to faint. And Joshua had fainted in prayer, he'd stopped. That's what led to this defeat. And it encourages us for the day in which we live, doesn't it? We need to pester God daily, continually, to appear for us as a people and as a nation. And come to him expecting him to do the things he did in the Reformation and in the Evangelical Awakening, in the local revivals of the Victorian times and of the 20th century, that he might do great things once again. Joshua was commanded in chapter 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, in our relationships, we're very clear on this. If you talk to most couples who break up, you say, what was the problem? And the problem comes down to one basic issue normally, communication. Either people can't express what they need, or they won't listen to what the other needs. Of course, I've been married nearly 13 years now. My wife's perfectly capable of speaking, and I don't hear a word of it. I have this sort of way of switching off, as all husbands develop, given enough time. And that can be a problem if you don't listen to the other person's needs, you don't care. And we need to have a good communication with God. You say, well, how does God communicate with me? If you start hearing voices, see a psychiatrist. The way God speaks to us is through his word, the Bible. The way he speaks to us is through his servants, the preachers. And we need to pray for the men that preach. You need to pray whether it's me or anybody else. You need to pray as you prepare yourself to come into the house of God that he will speak to you through that man. We're just but men. But you need the blessing of God and you need that to come from him through us. You can use the writings of good men of God, servants of God, either whether alive today or those of the past, and seek how the Lord will speak to your soul. But also you need to communicate with God, and you do that through prayer. Romans 8 teaches that the Holy Spirit maketh intercession for the saints with groanings that cannot be uttered. What is that speaking about? It's speaking about how The Holy Spirit's within us and it stirs us and inclines us to do those things which are right.
And if we don't read God's word and we don't heed the preaching of God's word, how do we know what the right things are to do? How do we know to make the right choices that please him? And when we need special direction, we need to heed the promises of God, such as in Proverbs 3, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. God told Joshua what was wrong when he finally prayed. He told Joshua why he'd not blessed them, why he'd chastised them, and what needed to happen in order to be restored to being his sanctified people, as finally we see faithfulness exacted. Joshua and the people faced a stark reality. Either obey God and submit to his chastisement and to do the things he told them as they did at Jericho or to be annihilated by the Canaanites. They were hopelessly outnumbered and without God's protection upon them, they would have been obliterated very quickly. Notice how in verse 14 they had to humble themselves before God Every tribe, every family, every household had to come before him. And it's believed likely that the lot was cast to discover the guilty party. And this reminds us of how we must come before Almighty God humbly. Whether it's under his hand of providence, the preaching, or in the final judgment, one way or the other, we will come humbly before God. Nobody is excluded. You know, it's easy for us when we hear a particular sermon or subject to think that it doesn't apply to them or that they are above reproof because we like to think that our sins are hidden but we're deceived if we think like that because they're known to God. And Achan clearly thought that these things he had taken could remain hidden but it wasn't so. We read that they are called accursed and this is because they either were claimed by God for himself or they were to be destroyed. We're not to understand this in some sort of superstitious way that a garment in and of itself could bring a curse or the silver in and of itself could bring a curse. And how careful we should be to avoid Achan's foolishness. As from verse 21, we see the account of what went on. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment... Now, these garments were sought after and value. Why? We're not too clear. Some think that it was the quality of the cloth. Others think it was the colour. Back in these days of dyeing, certainly certain colours were very precious and very difficult to obtain. And and sometimes certain areas would specialise in producing a colour. It was a trade secret, we might call. But whatever it was, there was something in this garment that made it desirable and expensive. Have you ever thought about the clothes that Achan wore and how silly this was? Achan had clothes on that were very old. Way older than any of the clothes you're wearing here. I'm getting to a time of life where I suddenly think, wow, I've had this thing 10 years. You think, how did that happen? And I still think of it as being new. But they're nothing like as old as Achan's clothes because they've been preserved by God For the best part of 40 years wandering in the wilderness, we read in Deuteronomy 8 verse 4, Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. And here's a great miracle, that even as the children of Israel were being punished by God to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, that their feet were kept 
from any injury, and their clothes were preserved. And he forgot that. He didn't value that these clothes were even preserved by the hand of God. And he looked at this worldly, Babylonish garment and craved that instead. Do you know many Christians are like that? They have all the blessings of the word of God, but they won't part with vanity and sin. They won't turn off those things that occupy their time. They're not necessarily sinful things, but they're they're not helpful things to our souls. And they won't take that time each day to read God's word and to pray and to spend time with the Lord and to meditate on the word of God. And if you think about it in terms of what is valuable to us with our never-dying souls, it's a very poor exchange. If you read the letters to the churches in Asia in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and particularly in chapter 2 you have the letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a very rich city. And the people there were being persecuted and were very poor. And there in parenthesis it says, but thou art rich, is what Christ said to that church. It's the only church of the seven where no criticism is made for how they're conducting themselves. They were rich. Why? Because they were rich in the grace available from Christ. They spent time with the Lord. They separated from the world. They didn't get involved in these other things like Achan did. And then there was 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them. When I first got married, my wife was very distrusting of other women. She was a jealous wife. If I talked to a woman, she got very upset. If another woman talked to me, she got really upset. And one day after preaching, uh, a young woman came up to me for advice about finding a marriage partner, and my wife was fit to be tied. Adelaide women, you won't know in this country, they're kind of Scottish source, and they're kind of a little bit strong about their, and strident about their, their men. The day the woman, young woman came and asked me for advice about marriage, I said, you should be rejoicing, I'm in mourning. She says, why is that? I said, she sees me as an old man, otherwise she wouldn't talk to me. But it's good that she is jealous about me. It's a sign of her love for me. And there is nothing sinful about being jealous. In fact, if a husband or wife isn't jealous about their partner, I'd be concerned about the marriage, to be honest. And we're told that God is a jealous God. So it can't be sinful to be jealous. But in English, we tend to mix up jealousy and covetousness. Covetousness is something very different. Now, if my wife looked at somebody else's husband and thought, oh, I wish I was married to him, that's coveting. Or if we look at something else somebody else has and say, well, they don't deserve that, I should have that, that's coveting. And that's wanting something that is not ours. We don't own it, it doesn't belong to it, And God has provided something else for us. And this is why we're told in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And these items were forbidden from Achan. But something within him, the lust burned within him, and he had to have those things. 
And so he took them. He took them. In Eden, Eve looked upon that which was forbidden. She coveted it. And she took it. And that Satan tripped her up and tempted her with exactly the same covetousness that he'd had concerning God. He looked in the pool, seen himself, and said, I will be like the Most High. I thought he should be on the level with God. The very sin that tempted Satan was the sin with which he caused mankind to fall. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole, eye sh- thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And Jesus taught about the way we look at things affects our whole outlook on things. If we look at things wrongly and in the wrong light, there's great damage to our soul. And the reason for this is we can either serve Christ or we can serve the world, mammon. We can either live for God or we can live for material things. And this is a great divide. And the, the whole temptation for every believer that's ever lived is we want both. But God has put that separation there. We can either live for him or live for material things. It's quite simple. And Achan's quite an extreme example of this. Achan's eye was avaricious and what sadness he brought. But look how foolish he was. He never actually got the opportunity to use these things or to enjoy these things. He said, they are in the earth, in the midst, in the middle of my tent. He'd simply taken them, taken them to his tent, dug a hole underneath, put them in there and closed it up. He never got to wear the garments. And before judgment was brought, Joshua confirmed that this was the case. And the evidence of Achan's theft was shown to the whole house of Israel. And the disobedience had to be put away from them. Well, how quickly did the blessing of God return to Joshua and to the people? In chapter 8, we read how Joshua is told by God that the king of Ai, his people, and the city and the land were to be given into his hand. And he took the battle seriously and won the day. With Ai was captured Bethel. And as we come towards a close this evening, let's think what this really meant to the people of God. This was a precious spot in the history of Israel. It was at Bethel, Abraham built an altar in Genesis 12 and first called on the name of the Lord. We tend to forget with Abraham when he was living in Uruk, the Chaldees, the greatest metropolis in the world at that time. He was a pagan offering up to idols. And it's at Bethel he starts first to call upon God. It's likely that from near here, Lot chose to dwell at Sodom in Genesis chapter 13. It was here that Jacob laid down to sleep and had the vision of the ladder 
leading up to heaven. And he named it Bethel, the house of God, because it was called Luz up till then. And as the covenant people of God, it's hard to imagine a more significant place to them and how important its capture was. Here they not only walked where their fathers had walked, but they actually acquired the very spot where God had covenanted to give the promised land to them. But it only came to them through their obedience. The psalmist wrote, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Well, I am sure that all of us can say we're guilty of Joshua at times of failing to pray. And I'm sure at times it's led us into some bad situations. And if any of us feel that we're in that situation now, remember what John wrote. If we confess our sins, he is gracious and just to cleanse us from our sins and to forgive our unrighteousness. We talk about the justice of God particularly when it comes to the punishment of sin. But to us, his people, the justice of God means that when we confess our sins and pray to be forgiven, he can't help himself. He has to forgive himself because he is a God of justice because Christ has paid the penalty for that sin at the cross. And you and I, if we will seek to have that walk with God, to be walking in his ways... We need to heed the numerous promises in Scripture where we're told something to the effect of draw near to me and I will draw near to you. They're there time and time again. And if you feel, well, I don't have the walk with the Lord that my parents had, grandparents had, or saints of old had that we used to know, it's not God's fault. It's yours. It's yours. And the defeat that happened in the, at Ai and Bethel was not God's fault. It was Joshua's and the people's fault. The sin of Achan and their failure to pray. Well, let's heed the exhortations of Christ to be a prayerful people, to seek his guidance and his help in every aspect of our life. And let us go boldly to the throne of grace for he is the all-powerful God, and we can ask great things of him. Amen.